0: Campside media
1: hello what is the uh, what do you want me to say is going on
0: here? Like
2: oh it's just um
3: chameleon. chameleon okay you're listening to chameleon
1: a production of Campside media oh <laughs> all
4: passengers and cabin crew should now be seated with their seatbelt securely them. the cabin lights were remain dim for landing
2: I was just so relieved to be, to have not been gang raped or abducted.
5: Remember last week when Heather got home safe? Even though she was back in London, Heather was traumatized for months afterwards.
2: It's affected me in ways that are not necessarily glaringly obvious or on the surface. Um, I have had trauma counseling because I feel like any trauma for anyone, no matter how you react to it, needs to be shaken out of your body somehow or however you do that, spiritually or physically or mentally.
5: Heather actually did this. She shook her body.
2: It's based on the theory that when animals are traumatized, when they run away from a lion or something, they lie down and shake and then they feel better. And they forget the trauma. It's something I learned at a sanctuary in Thailand. And it's kind of a really beautiful way of releasing stuff that you hold onto.
5: Heather was also worried about someone else.
2: Like, where's Anna?
5: The other makeup artist, Anna. The one she'd heard about from that kind Indonesian woman at the theater when she first got to Jakarta. Guess where Anna was when Heather's agent finally reached her? In the backseat of a car, still in Jakarta, in traffic with a driver who spoke very little English.
4: I got like a strange phone call from a British phone number.
5: This, you probably guessed, is Anna. She's Polish, so English isn't her first language.
4: Who was a representative of Heather Pritchard. I was so confused between, you know, the Chinese production and the lady that she called me. And I'm like, I don't know who you are.
5: Anna was caught totally off guard. Who was lying here? You
4: know, I wasn't really sure 100% what right. was going on right now. I'm like, oh my God, like, a meteor strike my head. Like, who are you supposed to believe?
5: Anna didn't know what to think. Because she was still hearing a lot from Leslie, the Chinese film producer, who was getting weirder and more erratic by the day. Like, Leslie had been getting on Anna's case about her social media.
4: She phoned me up, telling me why I'm posting pictures on Instagram and on my Facebook. And I'm like, okay, that is really weird. Like, you're stalking me right now? I didn't say anything about the movie or anything. I'm just, you know, having, you know, a trip. So she filmed me really bad, whatever I was doing. And she's like, oh, you lost your chance. The director didn't really like your, your behavior. So she was trying also to manipulate me. And I was like in tears because I'm a very sensitive person.
5: It was a stretch for her just to cover her own airfare to get to Jakarta.
4: I also realized after I did invoice them to get my money back and I was calling to German bank, to Chinese bank and nobody know anything. So I'm like, oh, fucking hell. I lost like six and a half thousand pounds.
5: It's a lot of money for a freelancer to lose. But there was something else.
4: The thing is, there is another side of the story because I went there second time.
5: You heard that right. When Heather's agent reached Anna, that was her second trip to scout around Jakarta at the request of this mysterious movie lady.
4: Everything was looking, you know, like from a fairy tale. You know, dreams come true, but not this one.
5: (laughs) Anna was out around $10,000. She felt crushed and ashamed and alone. But of course, she wasn't alone, not even close. As we're about to find out, the scam had its tentacles spread far and wide, preying on artists like Heather and Anna and on trainers like Eddie and so many more people. Every victim seemed to lead us to five more victims. But what the hell was this all about? And how many people were behind it? All I could picture was like a phone bank of women sitting at long tables and headsets, just emailing and calling people around the world, playing all kinds of characters.
0: And what's kind of amazing is when you imagine the women sitting at this phone bank, the people they're pretending to be when they make their calls are basically every powerful woman in Hollywood the real
1: one. talking to this woman named She's pretending to be Deborah her
4: name? was this
5: This is Chameleon, the story of the Hollywood Con Queen. I'm Josh Dean. Chapter 3, Into the Rabbit Hole. So, some people out there concocted this scheme maybe four years ago to lure young or at least up-and-coming Hollywood gig workers to Indonesia to work on some project, a movie or a TV show. Then, when these workers get over there, there is no movie. It's just a bunch of driving around. This is such a bizarre thing to do to people, and someone had to get to the bottom of it. It's just a surprise that the first person to pick up the trail would end up being a mom of two from New Jersey. The first time that mom heard about the scam, she was just trying to get her kids into the bathtub. This was late 2017. That's when her phone rang.
3: So when I got the first call from the lawyer, I actually was home trying to wrangle my kids for bath time. And I saw this contact calling and I, you know, he's at a Hollywood law firm, so I figured I should pick up the phone.
5: That's Nicoletta Katsianis. But to most people, she goes by Nicole. It fits her job. She's a private investigator. Nicole works from home a lot, so getting a call at inopportune moments, like in the evening at bath time, isn't so unusual.
3: I'm often on the phone as I'm doing all sorts of other things. Sometimes it's throwing Cheerios at the kids to keep them at bay for a couple of minutes.
5: Nicole's work isn't exactly James Bond stuff. She sits at a couple computer screens in her home office doing background searches on executive hires, litigation support, due diligence during mergers, asset searches. A lot of the time, her clients are companies.
3: A client will have won a judgment against a party, and they're not paying up. And so we help find the assets and seize the assets, and that includes everything from yachts and priceless art.
5: But this call that she got amidst the bubbles and splashes, it was different. It was a Hollywood lawyer who had brought Nicole business before. This time he had a client, a powerful, high-profile female movie producer whose identity had been stolen, but not in the typical way. Like, this wasn't to set up fake accounts or credit cards. Some mysterious con artist had become her, in a sense. Sound familiar? The client in this case wants to stay anonymous, so we won't be mentioning her name.
3: I thought it was more in line with what we typically work on impersonation cases, which either fall into two categories. It's a kook or it's a financial goal. We weren't seeing that initially, so we weren't really sure what category to put it into for a while.
5: Was this person a stalker? Nicole wondered about that.
3: We didn't understand why this person was doing it, and so all we really were doing in the beginning was trying to understand the motivation, and we didn't have a whole bunch of clues at that point as to the who um, or even the why.
5: Of course, Nicole was missing a key piece. She hadn't yet heard about the other side of the scam, the other victims, the Eddies and Heathers and Annas, who'd been baited into these trips.
3: Nobody we spoke to initially said, I was asked to get on a plane and go to Indonesia. And it wasn't until a couple of weeks later that we heard from the first victim who was in Indonesia at the point that they put two and two together, realized they were being scammed, contacted our client's real office. We thought we were. this was just a, a prank, basically. And now you're saying people are being asked to go to Indonesia. What's going on? And so at that point, everything changed.
5: This realization that it wasn't just one very powerful victim being messed with really turned the case on its head for Nicole.
3: So I started picking up the phone and talking to some of the people who had gone through this experience.
5: Nicole means that she'd reach out to people who'd made this bizarre journey from Hollywood or London or wherever to Indonesia. Often Nicole would hear about some person who'd gone to Jakarta secondhand in the way that we were hearing about people too, from other victims. One mark passes you on to another. And like us, she would just pick up the phone and call these marks cold.
3: We started calling the people who were getting these calls and trying to pick their brain about, who do you think this is? Did it sound like it really was an American? Did it sound like they worked in Hollywood? What was your take on who you were speaking to?
5: The victim seemed surprised to be getting these calls. Not everyone was excited about it.
3: A lot of former military guys who work in private security, you know, having spoken to them, They do not want their name affiliated with this. They don't want it to be known that they were scammed by this because they believe that this is something that they should have picked up on and that it will reflect badly on them.
5: Heather, the makeup artist, was a little more receptive.
2: I was really interested that she got in touch with me because I knew that when it hit America and it hit some bigger people than me, selfishly that made me it vindicated me because i thought oh i'm not the only one there are others like which is an awful thing to think because you don't want it happen to happen to anyone else but when it does it makes you feel less stupid
5: but even so she was a little wary of nicole was she legit
2: once we've been scammed, you do get suspicious and your sort of tummy goes in a knot. Nicole would kill me if she heard me saying this because we've swapped so many stories and confided in each other. But I just still have this like mistrust of anyone who's involved in this story at all.
5: It's understandable. These people, the Marks, were already rattled. And here was another random woman calling out of the blue, claiming to be some authority and wanting them to spill their guts to her. Think about where these people were. Heather had tried to report the crime or whatever it was when she got back to London by reaching back out to her contact at the consulate.
2: She kept forwarding it to various people and no one kept replying. And she even said, like, they've said they can't do anything about it. She's forwarded it to the embassy in Jakarta in case they ever get a phone call from a frantic person. They'll be aware of it or whatever. I'm like, oh, that's great. But no one's interested investigating or spending money or time or energy on something where there's no real victim like it's just i i get it they're like well did they get murdered did they get raped did someone traffic them did they have drugs in their bag like what was the scam i guess we're so desensitized nowadays to crime and murder and death and whatever that unless someone's actually bleeding or dying or traumatized to death it's not a big deal you know i'm exaggerating slightly to make a point but you know what i mean
5: Heather felt almost silly. There was shame about the scam, of course, and also shame because she wasn't taken seriously. Eddie, our trainer from Chapter One, he had tried to report the scam too by calling his local cops in Ventura.
3: I called Ventura Police Department, and they're like, well, we really don't do cyber crimes, stuff like that, and that's exactly what it seems like. You know, did you, were you harmed at any point? Were you held up at any point? Did they physically take money from you? Did they take money from your bank account? I was like, no. Did they take money from you? No. Were you robbed? No. You willingly gave them the money. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
5: Fuck. You know, and you're like, ah, well, cool.
3: Yay. Neato gang. So,
5: <laughs> All right. so it's not robbery because you gave them the money. Exactly. It's is it fraud? I mean. What did they commit fraud against? They just pretended
3: to be somebody else.
5: Hearing about that issue the victims were having, trying to report the crime, it clarified something for me. Almost from the day we first heard about this scam, we had been obsessing about the money. The amounts of cash that the marks handed over in Jakarta were just so small, like a couple thousand bucks max. And every time I told someone a version of this story, they wondered the same thing. How were these scammers making any money? But what if that's the idea? What if the relatively small amounts of money, paid out as fees and permits and to the cab driver, is a feature of this scam, not a bug? Stealing large amounts of money attracts cops, makes enemies. Stealing small amounts? It's just annoying and kind of brilliant, especially when you peel back the layers even further. More on that after the break.
0: Welcome to True Spies.
1: You're listening to Chameleon from Campside Media.
5: The way people felt when they heard from Nicole, almost ashamed to tell their stories, we were getting a lot of that too. Shame is a powerful emotion, and a natural one. Most everyone who falls for a con will feel some amount of shame. Victims often don't ever talk about it. And this is something serial con artists know. Their success depends on it.
2: Shame is exactly what they use to prevent people from talking about it. Shame and fear of shame and fear of whatever.
5: Heather went to Jakarta in 2016. We think that's the year the con started, but we're not 100% sure. We can be sure, however, that it's gone on basically unabated ever since. And there were so many people out there who felt like suckers, like they alone stepped in shit.
0: You could say the process of reporting this podcast was kind of like opening a set of Matryoshka dolls those old wooden nesting dolls from Russia. Every time we talked to one victim, she or he led us to the next one. We'd open the doll head and peer inside, and it was another person who had experienced a very similar-sounding scam. A lot of the rest of this episode is going to be us meeting some of those victims. And as the clues mount up, finding out exactly who is manning that phone bank.
5: The victim we're going to talk to now, she united a lot of them. Her name is Carly Rudd. Carly went to Jakarta in January 2019 with her husband. When they got back from Indonesia, she did something very different than the other victims. Carly didn't just lay low and feel embarrassed. Instead, she posted about what happened to her on Instagram the day after landing in New York. Here's what she said.
6: Hey guys, I don't normally do this, but I had a pretty scary experience recently that I feel compelled to share in hopes that it may be able to help others.
5: She was telling everyone, thousands of followers, what happened. I was
6: recently victim to a highly elaborate international business scam. I flew to Indonesia under the impression that I was being hired for A photography assignment, arriving in Jakarta, Indonesia. Things escalated. potential kidnapping heist. I'm pretty shaken up by the whole experience, but at the end of the day, I'm happy to be safe, and I'm back in the U.S., and yeah. Thanks, guys, for listening.
5: Carly's post was a turning point in the story because it was so widely seen. Nicole, the investigator, had reached a lot of victims, dozens at least, but there were so many more out there. When Carly's post went viral, she became a kind of pied piper for victims of the scam. All those lonely folks who had been embarrassed and ashamed couldn't believe that so many others had fallen into the same trap. It helped. They felt better, a little.
6: Within 24 hours, uh, I probably heard from hundreds of people that had been affected by the same scam. And over the course of that next week just was completely inundated with um, people contacting me and telling me that they, you know, knew somebody that would that so- something similar had happened to or people that were literally on the ground in the car with the driver and a friend of theirs sent them my blog post and they realized they were in the car with the same driver because I had a photograph of him on my blog. And-
5: Let me pause a second here. Carly even heard from a person who was in Jakarta in the driver's car when she saw Carly's post. I can't stop picturing that moment This woman, just flipping through her phone in the backseat of a cab, sees this shared post and just freezes. Oh, shit. I'm being scammed. Right now.
6: Multiple other people over the course of, you know, this year now, more than multiple, hundreds, like I said, have just still been affected by this scam artist.
5: So you think hundreds plural in the past year who have actually gone to Jakarta?
6: And that's just the people that I've had direct contact with. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's more.
5: Not a few, not a dozen, hundreds of people, possibly up to a thousand or more. This blew Carly's mind and ours. That volume is astounding. Multiply a thousand by say $1,500 and suddenly the money that people kept asking about, it isn't so small. That's 1.5 million dollars. We thought for a while that this scam was just quirky, that it was some prank and whoever was behind it got lucky that it worked more than once. But luck doesn't work a thousand times. The scope of this was just dizzying. Nicole felt like that, as she was sucked into the rabbit hole. And so did we. The scam is, if nothing else, a lot of time and detail management. The kind of operation that would require one hell of an organized team, running spreadsheets and fake websites and just complicated logistics. Was this a cabal of angry production managers?
0: So we were thinking about that when we were talking to Carly. But then she emailed us a tape recording that was amazing. On that tape, there was something that we'd heard about before. So, before the targets talk to the powerful woman, a lot of times they talk to an assistant. This is pretty normal in Hollywood. This is Aaron. Hi, Erin. Hi, Erin. How are you? This is Carly.
6: Hey, Carly.
0: How's it going? Good. So this particular assistant doesn't sound like a normal Hollywood assistant. Like he's not being officious or "please hold for my boss, so and so." This assistant actually kind of sounds like he's out of a Martin Scorsese movie. Like he spends time in taxi
4: depots. Ah, uh, yeah. Good question. Well, let me talk to the vendors manager because they don't want to take care of that. the me call them.
6: And- yeah, I just want to make, make sure, sure the hotel is aware that we we changed plans and I we're staying on one more night. List. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, don't worry about that. All right, uh, we'll perfect. I will talk to them and I'll give you a the next hour and a half. Okay, yeah. I'll speak to you then.
0: This guy, Aaron Thank from you. New York, was just one of many assistants we heard about. Sometimes they'd have a British accent or they'd sound Chinese.
6: Hello. Oh how are you, Carly? I'm doing
5: great. And Eddie's scammer was American with an American assistant. Eddie also talked to a male lawyer. There's a point where I was on the
3: phone and there's a three-way call with a lawyer right, with a man that was there, hey, Eddie, da-da-da, all this stuff, I just want to go over everything. And then say like, okay, and then you would hear D-backer say, okay, Eddie, are you satisfied, da-da-da? Here, and like, back and forth, and you're like,
5: okay. So, like, a cast of characters, that's pretty nuts. But I also heard about something even crazier, this mysterious casting agent. We found an actor who actually had an audition in Jakarta in person. We'll meet him and hear about that weird-ass audition after the break. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.
1: You're listening to Chameleon from Campside
5: Media. We were talking about something that honestly shocked us, a twist we hadn't seen coming. This was a phone and email scam, a trail of sham movies and producers who never were. But this one victim, an actor, had a very unique experience on his trip to Jakarta. He had an actual audition with a casting agent in an Indonesian high-rise. This actor's name is Omri Rose, and I met him, like always, from another contact. Omri lives in L.A. now. I met him at his friend's house, a little craftsman in the valley. Sherman Oaks, to be exact. Omri's tall and fit. He served in the Israeli military before he was an actor. I'm Omri Rose. I'm an actor, voice actor,
1: and script doctor. I do a lot of voice work.
5: I can hear it. You have a very good voice. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's like immediately apparent. I can definitely... I can close my eyes and imagine your voice. Well, buy Wrigley's Chewing Gum because I do
1: Wrigley's Extra. Do you? That's my little tag for you, Wrigley's. (laughs) I don't know if you're going to use this, but... Drink, chew. Extra. (laughs) They've been very good to me. Thank you, Wrigley's. (laughs) Representing Chicago. All
5: right. Um, Omri went to Jakarta a couple years ago now to supposedly do some scouting on a movie job. But while he was there, he was also asked to read for a part in person. At this...
1: Very swanky-looking building, and the driver just pulls up and he says, all right,
5: kind of points. Inside, in this bare office, obviously rented, Omri met a casting director. And oddly enough, it was a white guy, an American. Avin K.
1: Byrne. Black hair, kind of shoulder length, darker eyes, um, short, friendly.
5: Avin wanted him to read lines for the movie he was there to scout for, this kung fu epic called The Master. The master of visual action adventure. That, you might recall, is the same movie Heather was supposed to be working on during her trip to Jakarta. The producer in this case, a Chinese woman named Wei Yang, had sent Omri some sides in advance of his trip. Sides is the term for pages pulled out of movie scripts that actors get before auditions.
1: They looked legit. There is a script. I mean, it's a bad script, but it's it's a kung fu script. You yeah. think, all right, this kind of makes sense. It's kind of the cheesy, you know. Yeah. Maybe the Mandarin version of this is better written or the Cantonese version is better written. And this is just the English translation that when you read, because I used to watch the kung fu movies, the subtitles, it's kind of
5: like that. Plus, Donnie Yen, that star of Hong Kong cinema who was in Star Wars Rogue One, was supposed to be in it. So the movie couldn't be that bad. Omri was auditioning for a character called Aaron, who was described in that slick treatment he got like this.
1: Aaron was a versatile and renowned MMA athlete, combining his kickboxing skills with several disciplines, including his native samba, ballroom, intricate ballet, and tap. One day, as he was getting ready for an MMA competition, a mysterious and sudden accident left him almost dead. But when he got up, a sifu taught him the art of Tai Chi. After years of silent and resilient practice, Aaron was able to get to his feet and be whoever he wanted to be, even if his other leg was amputated.
5: Wait, am I getting this right? He's a one-legged, tap-dancing tai chi master. (laughs) So, in the dialogue Omri was supposed to read, this character's having a conversation with a man in a hood. The hooded
1: man jumping up and going, I don't care about your jade chain. Why were you spying on us? I'm looking for someone. Winston Lai, I'm a messenger from the DU Society. I have a message for him, and it's urgent that I give this to him personally. He is a master criminal and will face severe punishment if he doesn't obey certain orders. A master can be anything he desires. Any message to my master has to come through me, or... The hooded man, I am not scared of your threats. Then why are you hooded? To shield my head, which bears the DU symbol. It is part of our code. And then Aaron goes, Any message you have must come through me, or we can play a game. And then if you win, you can deliver the message directly to the master.
5: It's silly, a little hacky, but it also could be meaningful. The master here is a master criminal, which, I don't know, maybe it was a little signal from our writer, because here's the thing about the scam. When the feds bust up boiler rooms or email scams, they usually find a hive of people, a streamlined operation, working together. Some masterminds started the thing, probably, but to scale up requires a bunch of assistants and gophers and accomplices. And in this case, here's what we know. There are the voices on the phones, imposters pretending to be executives and assistants, lawyers, whatever else. Plus, we've got fake casting directors, real drivers, certainly bag men somewhere. And now it looks like there are writers involved and graphic designers. Except as Nicole, a relentless PI, dug into the documents and especially tape of the scammer that she'd been accumulating, something became increasingly clear, something really crazy. There was no phone bank, no boiler room, no network. This scam, with all its characters stretching over six years at least, it was just one person. Hello? Maybe there are some for-hire accomplices, like the smiling driver who speaks minimal English, or this Avin K. Byrne guy who auditioned Omri. Stooges who aren't even totally sure what they're doing. But the truth of this story, well, I'll let Carly tell you.
6: There's this crazy person that Um, is this master, you know, evil mastermind. And they have no other motive other than just they enjoy the thrill of it.
5: Yep, a single mastermind playing all these characters. Americans, Brits, Chinese, playing both assistant and boss, women and men. Nicole had thought that this was some vast network too. It was her operating theory for a while.
3: I'd say initially that that was the working assumption, having worked other impersonation cases in the past that do function that way and are structured
5: that way. But increasingly, the evidence was revealing something else.
3: We came across one individual who is involved in a couple of different capacities. It just became clear through some tradecraft as well as some cyber fingerprints that there really was one person who ultimately was behind the emails and and the calls. So as it were, the mastermind.
5: Nicole had found various hires, people building websites and signing up for phone numbers and obviously running errands in Jakarta. But those roads, well, all led back to the same place.
3: So those people collectively were leading to one person when you peel back the layers.
5: One lone human behind all of this
6: the number of people that have been impersonated is, it's crazy to think that one person is doing this.
5: Omri Rose has parsed that detail, that it's just one person a lot, especially because he'd met that casting director. What the hell was that?
1: So I looked up Avin K. Byrne, couldn't find anything casting-wise about this person. Um,
5: I think maybe I found
1: something somewhere that seemed like maybe it was an Avon without the K. Connected to Hooksyon, but like that again could have been something that they manufactured. Of course, the master went off IMDB after a while and disappeared and all that stuff. So who was that white guy? Was he a stooge? Was he an accomplice?
5: By the way, in those sides that Armory read, as this character Aaron, that character has another name in the script. Is your character in here?
1: Aaron the Chameleon, yeah. He's oh, wait, he's can... written
5: Aaron the Chameleon. (laughs) Chameleon, chameleon, chameleon. Oh, no I sent Vanessa the fake sides and then gave her a call. Just so you know, we called this podcast Chameleon long before we had any idea that this character in this one random fake movie.
0: But it's also like, I think when I looked at the actual printed out sides that he gave you, the title of the sides is also Chameleon. So I think it's like the nickname and also the title of that particular scene.
5: Oh, I actually didn't realize it went to that extent. We
4: really did name this podcast many months ago.
5: We have the receipts.
4: (laughs) We can can show you an email chain.
5: (laughs) If you got to this point thinking that this was the work of some network, because that just makes sense, take a minute to reconsider it all. Look at the scam now with a new lens, with the understanding that it's all the work of a single person. I asked Omri about that. If you think about the architecture of the scam and, and the the amount of time and effort, the project management aspect of knowing who you are at give a given moment and and who's where and and like what form does that agent need and what does that guy need? Who do I owe this much money to? Like it just seems impossible that one person could be doing it, but yeah. all indications are that it is one person. And and we're filling
1: out paperwork, they're responding to like it, there's so much nuance putting together schedules, you know. All that stuff, replying to the emails. Talking to people in numerous time zones. like Numerous time zones, pretending to be different people if it's one person, again, it's a lot of work.
5: Now the room I'm seeing in my head, the one I described way back at the beginning, looks totally different. It isn't a phone bank. It's just a single weirdo, alone in the dark. She's got four computers covered in post-it notes, color-coded spreadsheets, a whole wall of names and pictures connected by strands of yarn.
1: I don't picture a happy person deep down, you know. I I picture quite a, uh, a lonely person, an angry person, you know. And they do this stuff and they feel that power trip, but it's like a junkie. I mean, that's what it seems like to me. It's a junkie. Gets the power trip from doing this, but then when it's done, there's an emptiness. That's what I think. You know, that first hit was small and it gave you a rush, but then you need another one and another one. And it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But uh, you know, it all comes crashing down eventually.
5: Fuck the West
2: next, go and cash your <laughs> bad checks.
5: To find this person though would be another project entirely. But Nicole was on the hunt.
2: She managed to pull some metadata off my emails, which helped with the FBI, as I understand it, because they were able to subpoena some people and find out some information. And then we could make requests of some of the the entities that were being utilized to set up
3: phone numbers and domains.
5: That's next time on Chameleon. Chameleon is a
1: production of Campside Media, hosted by Josh Dean. It's developed, created, and written by Josh Dean and Vanessa Gregoriadis. The executive producer is Mark McAdam. The associate producer is Abukar Adon Additional field production by Emma Barnaby in London and Monique Laborde in LA. Fact-checking by Callie Hitchcock. Editorial support by Doug Slaywin and Natalia Winkleman. Our technical consultant is Ben Decker of Mem Etica. Our theme song is Bad Checks by Houses, sound design and additional music by Mark McAdam. Our consulting producers are Andy Horwitz at Atlas Entertainment, and Charles Mastropietro at Circle of Confusion. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners like you find the show. And if you have any information about the Con Queen scam, or were a victim and would like to share your story, please call 203-807-4453. You can also email us at chameleonpod at gmail.com. I'm Omri Rose. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.
5: And make sure to subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.